It's Monday, September 13th. You are listening to LA Podcast episode 191. The Elder Doom Scrolls is my proposal for that one. Uh, and we'll get into the reasons why you might be doom scrolling in a few minutes. My name is Scott Frazier. I'm here today with Alyssa Walker and Rachel Reyes. How are you both doing? I like how you drop the episode title now into the show so we cannot Can't change, change it. It. It was like, we're like, that's it. You nailed oh, it. Oh, yeah. That's the title. There okay. is, we don't have, there's mean, no debate. There is a filibuster process, <laughs> but you would have to get started before the record button. It would be like hit. a recall. I'm going to have a recall process oh, yeah, for, for the title. And the then title. we just pull it off of all platforms. The episode is no <laughs> longer available and it's replaced with an episode of the Joe Rogan experience. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the recall process. I mean, I don't like it, but that's what, that's what California Sorry. voters yeah. want. As you might also remember from last week's show, we are doing our first ever membership drive this month. We're calling it New Member September. For just a couple of dollars a month, you can join our Patreon, the Sepulveda Pass. Pass holders are what is keeping the show going and not just keeping us maintaining things at a current level, but also helping us to expand the programming and resources that we offer to our listeners. There's going to be a lot of new things coming out of this member drive. We're very excited to share with you, including new merchandise, which we've already tipped and which we've been asked for for a, a long time. So we're happy to finally start offering that. Additionally, with the Patreon starting this month, you're going to get access to the LA Podcast Discord server, something that we're also very excited about. And we're currently taking feedback on Patreon from members about what that should include. Um, uh, things like additional events and conversations with us and other experts in Los Angeles about things that are happening here politically. All of that is uh, what we're looking to bring to you in addition to the same programming, new programming, things that you have come to expect from us throughout the past uh, throughout the past three years that we've been doing this show. We also want to say thank you to Nilla, Casey, and Alexandra, three of our newest members, for signing up already. If you want to join them, you can go to patreon.com slash LA Podcast. We have so much to get into today. This is, as you're listening to it, the last day before the actual date of the recall election in California. Um, so that there is a lot going on related to that we'll, we'll talk about. But before we do, can we maybe talk some L.A. stories? Rachel, what's going on in your L.A. this week? So I had like two weeks off for my birthday. I've been relaxing and I went back to the Getty for the first time since 2020 pre-pandemic. Oh. And it was incredible. Um, I had so much fun. I just really appreciate that we have a place like the Getty in Los Angeles. It's free to attend. Um, you can take the bus there. You do have to pay parking fee of $20 up from 15. I did notice that. Wow. Um, Pandemic but, inflation. <laughs> you know, for $20, um, there's free Wi-Fi. You can go do work there. We could go record this there probably. Oh, that's a good point. Um, Let's do that. And it was just gorgeous. Um, they have a lot of pieces from LACMA on loan right now. So you can go see some of your friends from LACMA if you're into art. Um, and it was just, it was incredible. I forgot how much I enjoyed museums and how much I missed 
doing that kind of mm-hmm. stuff during the pandemic. I'm an art historian, so I really missed going to museums and I had a lot of fun in the gardens were bright. I mean, it was like everything was saturated with color yeah. there. So I really recommend if you have not gone yet. I haven't been to a museum since the pandemic started. I miss it terribly. <laughs> Wait, so they have a lot of stuff on loan from LACMA, but LACMA's back open now, right? I think it is. I believe so. There's, yeah. um, I saw a handful of things um, that are on loan from LACMA. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of nice to see them, like in a new yeah. setting with fresh curation. Um, and there's a couple of really great photography exhibitions that are on right now as well. One about protest um, that was very moving. Um for me personally. Um, I'm a big crier, as both of you know. So I cried yesterday at the Getty uh, looking at this photograph of Cesar Chavez um, during his hunger strike. And it was, yeah, it was just very moving and not something I expected at the Getty. And I know that they are trying to diversify their collection, diversify their staff Mm -hmm. to, you know, I mean, that's a separate conversation about how that's going. But I really did appreciate the... Um, dedication and, um, you know, the dedication to showing photographers of color, um, but also people of color just in in the museum um, in such a prominent way. So I hope that the Getty continues to do that. It made me feel very welcome. Yeah. It was just a nice, it was a nice thing to see. Alyssa, what is your LA story for this week? Well, I spent some time in another um, very important cultural landmark in Los Angeles, the Judge Harry Pregerson Interchange. We talk about mm-hmm. this more than I think any freeway feature on this show. <laughs> I mean, let's hopefully we should not be talking about any freeway features ever, except for say what I'm about to say about this one. But interchange this between is, what freeways? Yeah, this is you know what it is, even if you don't know the name or the judge of this <laughs> named after like we do on this show. It is the 110105. It is like the quintessential image of a freeway in every story about how bad freeways are for cities and the world. Um, so we're famous in in that sense. Even if you don't live in Los Angeles, you see you it on your Apple TV. <laughs> yeah, there's like a flyover, <laughs> the flyover the, in the, the screensaver. Yeah, and like La La Land, the the opening scene was filmed <laughs> yes, up there. Right. Right but you can only go up there if you have an easy pass or on the flyaway. If you're on the flyaway, if you're on top of it, yeah, it's you don't great. Get to, you don't get to dance unless yeah, you pay. You don't, yeah, you don't get pass. to dance, but if you're on the flyaway, like sailing over it, it's great. Best view ever. But if you are taking the bus or the train, and most people might not know when you're driving over it at 85 miles an hour, um, that it is a multimodal piece of transportation infrastructure. And on the very bottom, the Silver Line which is our super fast uh, rapid bus line um, that gets people from like the southern tip of Los Angeles and San Pedro all the way up to downtown and beyond, um, which is actually free now because buses are free, including the Silver Line. Yeah, but not including the orange line is oh that really right? the orange line I, is not i didn't realize the silver was part of it at all i'm actually not sure it was that all it. taped up i <laughs> took pictures anyway that part's great just ride the silver line <laughs> but i had occasion to be in this um in this situation uh two different times this past weekend and what you do is you sail in on the bus which is super fast and a great way to get around and then you take these escalators up to the green line which and this or whatever you call it 
C, I don't know what letter it is. Um, it's green. Um, it is the C line. Where you go in the middle of the 105 freeway um, for at least this part of it to get to what will eventually connect to um, the Crenshaw line. Whatever. Yeah. I don't, don't ever ask me the letters. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but it is, I was with my kids and it is so loud under there. Like yeah. it is an experience. Like it, it, I would definitely like recommend going and seeing it because it's, it is just like you are in awe that the cars are allowed to go this close to you and that fast. And there's all these people waiting for the bus. And like, then you go up to the train and you're like in the same situation, but like literally the cars are right there. Hot and you and have loud. This, yeah, hot and loud. And you have this amazing view of downtown if the smog isn't too bad. Um, but it is, it just made me think both times I was there, two things. One is we don't build this ambitious for anything anymore. Mm -hmm. Like if we, yes, I guess it has like stacked multimodal capabilities. There is a train in there somewhere. There is a bus in there somewhere, but it was mostly built to move as many cars as possible over this three level um, interchange. Um, So that was my first thought was just like, what can we even compare it to that we've built as ambitiously as this? You know, you could say- you could say the subway, maybe the regional connector might count. It was the crowning achievement of the freeway era. Yeah. There's not yeah. ever, can't beat it. never, ever, ever going to be another yeah. freeway interchange like that built in LA. That was, ni- that was 1990s. It was the last one. So then how do we destroy this? <laughs> how do we take this apart? Because it is the worst place to wait for a bus is the worst place to wait for a train. Yeah. It is extremely dangerous and there are, you can look very easily to see how it's impacted all the neighborhoods around it. Like you, they basically took out like five or six neighborhoods just to build it and the ones to the west are doing a little bit better than the ones to the east, even if you want to calibrate it that way, right? Like They could just build like, could, don't you think they could just build a an actual like uh, terminal or like hub, like you could build a building in the middle oh, yeah. of that. Well, it goes down so low too. It but does. anyway, it does. Just standing there waiting for the bus, which came very quickly, as did the Green Line, because they're both on you know these highways separated grades, which is one positive thing I'll say about it. Um, you know, my kids were terrified of the sound and had their hands over their ears because it was so loud and scary. But they did have this moment too where they were kind of like we had driven over it and they didn't really know that this was all hidden in the middle. It was like this revealed um, secret of our transportation um, successes, I guess. I mean, one of the other things that you never notice until you do see that like aerial shot of the structure is the freight line that goes underneath it, which is like a yet another layer down below. Oh, yeah, you don't below. even see that. That's right. It's a very, it is a very complex um, structure. And like you're saying, will never be replicated and probably shouldn't exist. <laughs> uh, I will go last. My LA story actually, as we're recording this on Friday, was uh, was last night. It was a long night for me because my sleep schedule is all out of whack with a new baby. Of course, that's not, a surprise to anybody necessarily, but um, falling asleep in the middle of the day, being awake at odd hours throughout the night, as it so happened on Thursday night, I was awake between the hours of midnight and about 2.30 and got treated to a really intense lightning show around Los Angeles. 
Um, there was no, at least as far as I'm aware, no measurable rain that we received. Um, shout out to our dear departed friend, Hayes Davenport, who would, uh, who would be the one who would know whether or not any rain was recorded. Um, Hayes, please contact us and let us know when you hear this. There was some rain. There was some yeah, rain. There okay. Was some rain. But there was lots of lightning, dry like lightning. a lot worst. of lightning. So we had dry lightning, which I mean, basically like uh, the entire LA basin is the inside of your dryer at home, and there's just like static cling happening. <laughs> across the tens of miles. I was terrified. I was, was so scared that was was really have, intense. we were going to have a fire. And we didn't, right? Like there, there was no, here, no fires that, that started that we were aware of. I think of. it rained quite significantly like up north where they needed. And east yeah, in, the, yeah. in the San Gabriel Valley, yeah. they did get a lot of rain out towards the uh, county border with, uh, with San Bernardino. Um, but it was really just incredible to watch. It reminded me of being back in Arizona where these types of condition uh, conditions are much more common. Sort of just a reminder, though, of how rapidly climate is changing in Los Angeles. There's been a lot of conversation about this this summer and in uh, recent summers, particularly as we talk about uh, lightning and thunder not really being something that would ever have been common at any point in Los Angeles during the 20th century, now increasingly common in the 21st. Um, you know, things like the increasing prevalence of mosquitoes here during the summer, uh, monsoonal moisture. Um, it's pretty sticky as we're recording this right now. Um, but yeah, it was just, you know, being awake in the middle of the night and seeing, it was, it's almost like how we have our earthquake Twitter. Now we have lightning Twitter. I would I looked outside <laughs> and I was like, is that really what I think it is? And then I go online and it's like, oh yeah, everybody else has seen this too. It's not just like, I don't know, fairy lights in the I had, Yeah, I had the thing where I woke up and um and saw the sky was orange. And of course that always means like smoke, but it was actually like just this beautiful morning humidity hanging in the air and had a, just a beautiful sunrise. So. I missed this completely. I'm really sad about it. Stay well, up. Have a baby. <laughs> stay. <laughs> I should just, yeah, I should just have kids. You have to uh, stay woke. And speaking <laughs> of staying woke, we're going to get into our headlines for this week. Uh, we had prominent candidate for governor in the recall election for Gavin Newsom, Larry Elder, uh, Southern California radio personality visiting various sites in Los Angeles this past week. He was chased out of Venice and then received a warm welcome in the San Fernando Valley. Sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry on behalf of the entire 818. What, what, what happened? So uh, while Larry Elder was visiting Venice, he was being accompanied by members of the Venice Neighborhood Council, um, there are a, a number of members of that body who have emerged as voices against unhoused people living in and around the boardwalk and also uh, just in general forces for reactionary politics. They have uh, toured not just Larry Elder, but also Caitlyn Jenner around this area. I believe they've also been present at uh, press conferences held by Joe Buscaino and Sheriff Alex Villanueva. At this particular event, Larry Elder was forced to cut uh, his his tour short when a woman and various protesters uh, were all shouting at him to leave. Uh, but a woman in a gorilla mask 
apparently threw an egg at his entourage, which I don't think hit anybody, but the egg was thrown. Uh, and uh, and the same woman slapped a security guard for Larry Elder. Um, so they departed quickly. And Alex Villanueva, the sheriff, is, is saying uh, is saying online today that it is quote unquote woke privilege for uh, for someone to be able to throw an egg at uh, at a black man if he is a Republican and not be charged with a hate crime. As it so happens. Uh, the members of the neighborhood council have pressed for LAPD to file hate crime charges against this woman. Has, does w- w- okay, let's talk about this. There's so much. I could just keep going. That, this, mean, this story just continues and th- again, continues. Again, this is why I keep saying like this is wasting our time and our brain cells mm-hmm. to be working, to be com- you know commenting and working on the recall stuff because we have much better things to talk about. And now we're wasting our time talking about this, but. I was happy to see him get chased out. <laughs> yeah. And I wish that, that Caitlyn Jenner had been chased out mm-hmm. as aggressively. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. there was not a, a real moment of um, where advocates and, um, you know, people were kind of uh, yelling as forcibly at right. Caitlyn Jenner. Um, but it, yeah, it looked like they were trying to get ready to take the same tour with the same people and then it was cut short. So I was, I was pleased. Did you, do you think it's just a matter of timing? Because I, I, I was wondering about this too. Like, first of all, Larry Elder is much more credible. I mean, he's the front runner. He is the front runner in, in all of the polling for who could replace Gavin Newsom in the event that the recall is successful. But also he's showing up right before the date of the election at a point in time where a lot more all of the all of the available data that we have says that democrats have actually just started paying attention to this race in the last week or so so maybe caitlin jenner gets off relatively easy Probably. just because yeah. people aren't paying that much atten- attention and look no one cares about caitlin jenner i'm sorry if she <laughs> to, to be honest if she wanted a chance she would have stayed with the kardashian crew yeah. and that actually might have actually had a chance no one cares about caitlin Larry Elder, people know who he is. So even, you know, obviously the elections in a couple of days, people know who he is. Um, And he's been disliked for many, many years. And what I have seen since the egg throwing incident Mm -hmm. is just a lot of people expressing surprise that Larry Elder is black. Like people did not even know that. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, you know, so I guess he got some press time for that. People now know that he's black. Um, so there has been some interesting commentary there, but I haven't, I didn't realize that the Venice Neighborhood Council wants to charge uh, this yeah. woman with a hate yeah, crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That just happened. Um, that that so just she, happened. They also felt threatened, they said themselves. Yes. You're they right. are um, the only people of color on the Neighborhood Council. On the Neighborhood Council. I, That's not true. That but, isn't true, yeah. but I believe that they would say that. Um, the, the, the interesting thing, I mean, so... Uh, this almost seems like a tailor-made sort of scandal for exactly what Larry Elder is planning to do, which is to um, distill the essence of Trumpist politics. And I mean, he's actually already said he he has a a website that is up currently uh, accusing the Democrats of stealing the recall election now that it appears that it will fail even though votes How have not been steal it before <laughs> votes have over. not been tabulated yet. Um, and also it, when they weren't really taking it seriously until 
like two months yeah. ago, frankly. Yeah, anyway, stealing right. anything. Now, so now the the plan is to replay the the playbook from, I guess, from January, from November through January that Donald Trump used. It really helped Donald Trump. He is, of course, still the president. So um, it's 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 sure to to succeed I think for him. The insurrection's coming up on September eighteenth, so you never know. I think that it could <laughs> be real this time. Uh, yeah. So I mean, what what happened in? Uh, how do we explain? I'm going to make you apologize for for your Valley people. How do we explain the popularity of Larry Elder in this? Di- was it just ringers that were in this diner? <laughs> did you did know? They, did did they you know who he was just- as someone who grew up here? Like, do you remember? Because like Matt said, he didn't know oh, who he was growing up. Yeah. So. Um, for those of you who don't know, which is probably most people, um, except for my mom who does listen, my dad is a Republican and my dad listened to talk radio growing up. So I listened to talk radio growing up. I knew who Larry Elder was. Um, and it does not surprise me in any capacity that Northridge welcomed this man with open arms. That- let's, let's give a little, <laughs> um, what happened? So he goes to a diner in, in Northridge following the yes. Venice incident yes. and what happens? Orders eggs. Uh, people were clapping. <laughs> people were like very excited. He was really, truly warmly welcomed. Like as a though, hero. Yeah, as though he was a hero of the Valley. I don't know if he's from the Valley. I don't, if that's part of the context. He's from South he Central. And okay. he, he, that's a lot of grist for his mill, <laughs> as it so happens. So, okay, I was like, maybe he's from Northridge and I didn't realize that. But, you know, the Valley is, um, of course, like everywhere there are people on the left and the right, but the Valley is reactionary and the Valley can tend to skew very conservative. Um, so it didn't surprise me, especially in somewhere like Northridge, where there are a lot of cops who live in the area. Um, there's also a lot of money in Northridge. Um, but it did surprise me, frankly, because there is a university in Northridge. So obviously those communities tend to be a little bit more liberal leaning, but yeah, I saw that and I was like, of course, <laughs> of course, his, his um, you know, place of safety and comfort is in the valley. So that was upsetting, but not surprising. Northridge has this sort of bifurcated personality. And there, yes, with the it's, it's sort of similar to uh, to the dynamic with UCLA and Westwood. Of course, obviously, uh, in the community surrounding Westwood, almost all of them are extremely deep blue with the exception of increasingly Beverly Hills. Um, But you still have this bifurcated personality where it's like you have progressive younger folks, university students who have very different priorities than the older wealthy homeowners who also live in the area in Northridge. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, um, uh, of this sort of reactionary sentiment there. And that battle has been waged at the neighborhood council level just like it has in Venice. Yeah. I do kind of, I still kind of wonder if it was stocked with um, friendly faces at, at, I mean, they couldn't pull it off in Venice, so who knows, maybe not. But um, but that is definitely, that was one of the things I was thinking when uh, Julia Wick of the LA Times was posting her, her clips of her uh, following this entourage around the city online. Let's talk about a friend of the show, a longtime acquaintance for our listeners, former city council member from the 14th district, Jose Wezar, who is back in the news because he has a really good, really solid defense 
for uh, the corruption charges that he's facing at the uh, at the federal level. Alyssa, what does Huizar have to say for himself? Well, first of all, do we need a little bit of music? I can, yes, I can, I can hear, hear it. it. I can hear it. In my mind, I can hear it. Favors are not bribes. <laughs> What are favors? Can you, t- <laughs> can you tell me that? Okay. So last we left the council member. He was doing great. He was doing great. He was posting what, like the, the Virgin of Guadalupe on social media? Yeah, he was trying to get permission to go to a religious pilgrimage. Did you know this? I did not. Yeah, he was trying to get special permission from the judge to be able to go on a religious pilgrimage. So maybe it was related this is recently, like the, this is, he just wanted to leave. I will do, <laughs> I will do a very, I'll do a very brief rundown of where we left off with Jose Huizar. Um, he has been charged with, uh, with multiple counts of corruption, including uh, taking more than a million dollars in bribe payments for uh, altering city actions related to developments. His trial has been continued into early next year. In early defenses that he put out, he did plead not guilty, which was a stark contrast to a lot of his uh, alleged collaborators who have uh, uh, either pled guilty or, in the case of some of the companies, paid the federal government in order to forestall or prevent actually being charged with criminal offenses. Uh, Jose Wizar has said that he is being persecuted. He did post uh, religious iconography on his social media account in order to uh, suggest that he was wrongfully accused and uh, basically being martyred. And apparent. Oh, oh, he also, no. I forgot to say, he is broke. He asked for and received um, f- uh, permission to use a public defender, I want to say, because he had no money to hire a defender. I mean, let's just say he has been fighting numerous civil suits over the course of the past several years related to his uh, conduct in office and potential discriminatory firings of various staffers. And now he wants to go on a religious pil- pilgrimage. Alyssa, what what was the latest? I think he's going to be able to Weezer. go on that, which he'll be. He can go and pray for his, um, you know, pray for money or something. But <laughs> I mean, he is describing um, himself as an evangelist. Now, yes, so. this was amazing. So remember, he got all these gifts from developers. We've talked in in depth of all these. Uh, uh, also, cash ba- bags and and boxes of, of various size and materials <laughs> of cash, and um, he claims that this was not a problem. It's not, it's not illegal because he was only acting as an evangelist for robust development. He, yeah. he was only trying to help guys. And it's okay if you take some gifts because it's for the good of the city, it's for the good of the developer. Is that like a new Yimby thing? <laughs> uh, could be. I mean, he was popular in those circles for quite some time. The thing that's interesting about this response to me is that he's saying, you, you, you were mistaken. You thought that this was corruption, but really these developers just want to do me a solid because I'm so great to them, which is an interesting, I mean, it sounds almost synonymous with a quid pro quo. Yes. 
but it's just two two good friends who really like doing good things right. for each other together. And he also argued that the projects that he supported were the same developers who were working on, say, HHH projects. Yes. So these were adding affordable housing, uh, supportive housing stock to the city. So, you know, it's okay if you get some some bribes from them because we're just helping to hit the it's kinda like, goals, housing goals. Uh, Gretchen Wieners at the end of Mean Girls when she's just like, it's not, I can't, it's not my fault if everybody likes me and they just want to do nice things for me all the time. It's not my fault that I'm popular. That's, pr- that's pretty much the defense. But I, and, and what's interesting is that his successor in the city council, we now know was um, not just, you know, not necessarily getting cash or bribes, but it was on the payroll for AHF, which is one of the affordable housing developers in downtown. He yeah. was paid um, during his first year in office, which he did not disclose on his first form, but then disclosed on his second uh, filing. Uh, he forgot, I guess, is what he told um, <laughs> Matt when Matt called their office. But that's also interesting too. So I guess if you're if you're taking money from places that do affordable housing or adding the affordable housing stock needed, then it's fine. The the I mean. So at least as far as we're aware, the distinction for Kevin DeLeon is that he was, this is his uh, Form 700, which all elected and other public employees need to fill out in order to uh, to disclose what their sources of income are. For Kevin DeLeon, who, who came, into, uh, came into his position what would we say that was in October, November of last year, a little bit earlier than it should have been due to the vacancy left by Jose Weizar. Earlier in, at least earlier in 2020, he was apparently on payroll as a consultant for uh, for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. And yeah, then spoke very highly of them. There, That, that was... Uh, a relatively recent discovery uh, by some folks online, and it does raise additional questions. For Jose Weizar, I mean, the the real question that I have is when you have this web of alleged co-conspirators, you know, the the vast majority of whom have already decided to plead guilty, is this strategy going to pay off? Of course, we can't really say at this point, but he's going to a jury trial, and there is a considerable amount of, of evidence stacked up against him. So, um, council member, we will check back in with you soon. And I hope that, uh, your pilgrimage goes quite well. Let's see. What do we have next to talk about? We want to get into further updates in the ongoing saga of vaccine mandates in Los Angeles County, The biggest news regarding this, of course, from a national perspective during the past week, actually came from the federal government where Joe Biden's administration announced that it would, through OSHA, direct the the mandate for vaccination or weekly testing for employees numbering in in or around about 100 million. So nearly uh, under this, nearly two thirds of workers in the country would be expected to be covered by some vaccine mandate or other. Uh, this, w- this was extremely large news and it impacts Los Angeles as well. But locally, 
We also know that LAUSD has been in the process of taking some steps of its own. Uh, what was the LAUSD news this week? I thought this was huge. And apparently when we're um, looking at other big cities, we can't even come close to what we were able to do, what we've been able to do at LAUSD. I mean, you look at like New York City hasn't started school yet. They start on Monday, um, but we'll we'll see. We'll see. New York. We'll see what they do. We've got you. But um, we have our students in full-time in-person classes. We have weekly testing going. We have the data is showing that the number of cases has gone down since they caught a bunch of cases the first week. Um, We have a, a vaccine mandate for teachers and staff, which they will all have to be vaccinated by October. Um, and now what they announced this week was that um, all students 12 and up also have to be vaccinated. And the, the date is not till January, mm-hmm. um, but this is still like above and I mean, no one can come close to what we're doing and, and how we're basically conducting like the most testing of anywhere else in the county. Um, we have the, the majority, country. the majority of the test. Well, the majority of the, it, oh, in the county, I like, see. Uh, our our LAUSD testing is now making up the majority of the testing being done in the county. That's a big which stat. Is, and this, we basically have a giant contact tracing like procedure happening. Um, and that's great. We're doing such a good job. So this was just great to see the board um, voted unanimously um, in favor of it. And there were some horrible anti-vaxxer people outside of the um, board meeting. But um, we're going we're gonna to do it. This is interesting because you have to wonder, a lot of these anti-vax protesters, I think, are famously not actually part of the LAUSD school system, not. right? Like the, the, the Definitely not. Demographics for LAUSD, which has hundreds of thousands of, of kids, second largest school district in the country behind New York, uh, the demographics are wildly skewed. They're what something like four fifths Latino, I think. I think it's 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 up close to that, and then ten uh, percent white, and and they're just not representative numbers at all because there's so much uh, self selection out by, in particular, white parents. So the the wealthy Westsiders and the Republicans also being disproportionately white. A lot of these anti-vax communities have roots there and are not not affected by no, these I don't mandates. Think they are, yeah. I think a lot. But of it's these just people, a political. They'll get mad, and this for the same reason as the you know the federal mandates, right. which is not technically a mandate. I guess it's just a. It's an OSHA. Like, explain how that would work, Rachel. I'm so glad so you're here. You basically can either be fully vaccinated or um, have a weekly test done. So it's not a mandate um, for non-federal employees, I believe. For federal employees, you have to be vaccinated. There is no choice um, to test. But for businesses with 100 or more employees um, that are not federal businesses, you can either be fully vaccinated or submit yourself to weekly testing. So the choice is up to you in that respect. Um, but I think it's important to point out, Scott, as you did, that the anti-vaxxers, um, you know, with regards to this LAUSD um, mandate are not LAUSD parents. And all of this is rooted in racism. Like, let's be frank, um, the richer, wider communities are not impacted by this. And I think that is something that's really important to point out. Right. I mean, there's, 
it's like there's this impulse where LAUSD is still seen as something like we should have all the control we want over this, even though yeah. we have opted not to send our kids here. We go to private right. school. We, we go have to nothing different. Nothing to do with the system, right? It's, and it's, yeah. we should still be able to control how it operates and and prevent them from keeping their kids safe. Control six hundred thousand students right. that my children don't and probably will not ever interact yes. with. And what's interesting too is I think um, we also saw there wasn't any type of fanfare about it, which I was kind of confused about, but the city signed its vaccine, uh, similar type of rules as this, these OSHA guidelines um, for the city of LA, where um, it would affect the police and uh, the fire departments, which have been um, notoriously... um, Un, hesitant, un, hesitant, <laughs> hesitant. Good word. But it was it was signed, and I th- the city didn't make a big deal about it. It was kind of like we thought we were we knew it was passed by council, and then I only found out it was signed because there was a column by Steve Lopez in the LA Times that issued a correction about the fire department not getting vaccinated, and all of a sudden it said that it had been signed, and lo and behold, it had been signed by the mayor. But why no big announcement? Is this to signal that like? we're open to negotiation or something, uh-huh. right? I mean, he announced, he maybe walked outside of his house and announced Just in, like in the, the office, the Michael Scott office sort of way. I, I am signing I this. did not get a press release. There's no press release, like, which I thought would be like an amazing, um, you know, COVID mitigation win, I right? I think it's to not draw the ire or attention of anti-vaxxers. You have to yeah. think Mayor Garcetti just wants no press, no press whatsoever. He good, wants to bad, fade away. indifferent. I, I, it, that, that seems like the only explanation I can think of to not even put out a press conference saying, or sorry, a press release saying, I've signed this, here's the intention, here's why it's important. Um, nothing, just complete radio silence, which has been, I mean, you normally get the press releases from them. It's been sort of the, uh, the case for a while now. They're just quiet on a lot of fronts. I find that interesting and that will be affected by the federal rules, right? Because it's employees over 100, like a city department mm-hmm. is over 100, over 100 I guess employees. It's the, whole, it's the whole city. So right. um, no matter what, it's going to happen, I guess. But I, I find that very, very odd that we aren't like out in the streets celebrating this um, or at least city employees. Maybe they're not happy about it. Maybe they're just, you know, they want to, they think it's going to go away. Some, at least certain strong unions in the city. I mean, the, the, a lot of the discussion around the federal mandate, like you're saying, the, so Los Angeles, city of Los Angeles, LAUSD have taken uh, these steps, but that's just one school district and just one, uh, and just one city, the largest city, but still just one city within LA County. So there are lots of other governments that are potentially going to be impacted by the federal ruling, which is why it's definitely important locally. Um, And I think that a lot of what is going on now is there has been an effort to try to grapple with the magnitude of of this order. And it did generate, I mean, specifically the federal order, and it did generate a lot of panic among Republicans and, um, and anger. Um, libertarians are p- picking up all their belongings and moving to New Hampshire, which they then plan to have secede from the country. Um, interesting times to say the, the least. 
but, uh, but yeah, so I mean, I think that a lot of what is going on currently is just people trying to figure out how far reaching this is actually going to be and if it will be allowed to stand by the conservative Supreme Court. So there's, uh, there's too much that is up in the air, I think, to really know how this will all play out in the coming weeks. But as it stands right now, it is a cause for celebration, particularly if you live in a city uh, or, I mean, even if you're just in L.A. County, like with the patchwork that we have here, it is very important that you have these large employers forced to make this choice, forced to uh, to offer either you get the vaccination or you get tested or you don't work here anymore. Those are, those are now the three options that are going to be on the table for, for people at these employers. Lastly, we want to talk about SB 62, uh, which is a piece of legislation that has been in progress in Sacramento for several years now. And this is intended to target so-called piece rate work, which is very common as a practice in the garment industry. Los Angeles is, I think we've, we've mentioned several times on the show previously, Los Angeles is the center of the garment industry nationally. So this uh, legislation, which is intended to protect garment workers, would have an outsized impact on the local economy if passed. But there are challenges in, in, in getting it passed. We need to go through what some of those are. Rachel, can you talk us through, first of all, what SB 62 would do? So um, as you said, it would um, end sub-minimum wage, um, which basically, for those of you that don't know, um, garment workers are paid by piece produced. So that on average, <laughs> um, according to the Garment Workers Center, um, they published a study last December, on average, garment workers are paid $5.85 an hour, um, but sometimes as little as $2.68 per hour. Um, so I recommend for folks that don't know much about the garment industry uh, to go read the Garment Worker Center's um, study that they published last year. What is like, just what, what is a garment worker? Like as people yeah. think about that, like, mm -hmm. um, what are the different jobs that people are doing creating? I don't know, like, uh, and, uh, is one person creating a pair of jeans, for example, or like what, what's happening? So I'll put it in context of the pandemic because I think that garment workers were, impacted disproportionately last year at the beginning of the pandemic and well into the summer, but it really wasn't discussed as often as grocery store workers or, or other essential workers were. Um, so we had a lot of garment workers in the city making masks. So making one mask, making other protective garments for hospitals um, and other essential workers, because of course there was a huge shortage of things like masks um, and gowns at hospitals. Um, so workers were working up to 12 hour days uh, to produce right. these um, protective garments for other essential workers in extremely close, close quarters, which was causing an incredible amount of outbreaks, an incredible amount of um, infections at the workplace. Um, and as we've discussed before, you know, 
workplace infections and community spread are intertwined, right? Like the garment workers do not live in the factories that they work at. They go home to their communities. Um, And so there was a ton of community spread because garment workers were not protected. Um, So the pandemic really exacerbated a lot of poor working conditions that existed before the pandemic. What, when you say 12 hour days, cramped working conditions, below minimum wage, that sounds like the textbook <laughs> definition of a sweatshop, yeah. doesn't it? Is that is that a fair characterization? It is a fair characterization. And those exist throughout LA. Mm-hmm. They exist throughout LA. They exist throughout the country. Um, and as you stated earlier, we have such a large um, number of garment workers in Los Angeles that passing something like SB 62 um, at a state level would have an incredibly positive ripple effect throughout the country for other garment workers. Um, So it's really frustrating that it is stalled yet again in the Senate. Hey, this is Matt. I want to give you a little update that occurred after LA Podcast's 191st episode was taped on Friday evening. And that is that SB 62 was released from the Assembly and was passed out of the California State Senate by about 8 p.m. on Friday. We're leaving in the preceding discussion because it shows how the game of politics in our state government gets played right down to the very last minute. It was only after a robust social media campaign on Friday evening by the Garment Worker Center and other progressive California organizations that the bill was released from the assembly. It was passed by the state Senate, and now all it needs to become law is a signature from Governor Gavin Newsom. With that, back to where things were on Friday. It was not on the schedule today for a vote. Um, and today was the last, today was a deadline to approve bills for this year. Um, so there's not going to be a vote to pass it. And I want to talk about this because it's a very peculiar mechanism by which this bill, as, as we're recording this, again, the legislative session has not yet ended, but as we're recording this, it does seem like SB 62 will not uh, pass this year. Um, but before we get into that, like when this is so confusing, I think to a lot of people who are used to particular types of wage labor Mm -hmm. or they have, uh, if, if they're lucky, they have a salary. Um, but when we talk about below minimum wage work and not the kind of, um, and not the kind of informal economies that people are used to thinking of, like um, obviously the, the agricultural industry is infamous for, um, for employing uh, immigrant labor and, and paying sub-minimum wages with impunity, basically. But how do, in urban cities like Los Angeles, a large, uh, suppose, I mean, if you read any press ever, a large progressive city, how does below minimum wage work exist? How is it legal? What is the what is the piece rate system look like? Like how how does that function in practice? So similar to um, farm workers who get paid by box of produce that they pick, um, garment workers are paid for one item that they produce: one dress, one pair of jeans, like you one said mask. earlier, one mask. Um, and it is legal because. The populations that, um, you know, make up a large portion of these workers are undocumented. Uh, they are women. They are people of color. Mm-hmm. In Los Angeles, they're mostly brown. Um, and so it's a lot of populations that we ignore, frankly. Um, and 
there's just not enough policy to protect these workers. And if folks are familiar with how in other states, um, you know, tipped wages, right? Like you can make like $2.50 working at Denny's or whatever. Um, And then your tips are supposed to make up like the other $5 that you're meant to make. Um, It's similar to that, um, but just by piece. And no one's tipping the garment workers, unfortunately. So they're not, uh, they're not bringing their wages up to the minimum wage, um, which in the state of California is 14, almost 15. I mean, it's just, it's legal and it shouldn't be. Um, I I don't know how else to explain it. Um, It's really unfortunate that we are, we have allowed sweatshops to exist in Los Angeles. And it's not every factory. I want to be very clear, like not every factory um, reformation pays its workers uh, minimum wage. Um, And they are not paid by piece. Um, And there are other employers that do that. However, uh, they are in competition with factories that don't pay their workers properly. Um, and so lose a lot of business um, to brands that want to make the most profit off of their items um, by paying workers the least. Um, so a lot of factories that signed on to this bill um, and have signed on to um, similar legislation that would raise the level and raise the floor for workers in, in the garment industry um, are kind of at a loss because they yeah. want to be able to pro- provide good jobs um, for people in Los Angeles and believe that everybody should be paid minimum wage, have access to health care and other benefits. Um, but it's tricky when businesses just want to make profits and don't care about their employees. And consumers just want to pay less for, you know, they want the... They want their TikTok hauls, their $5 dresses. <laughs> they want to shop on Amazon. Yeah. The seven, the $7 H&M uh, t-shirt or whatever the case might be. Exactly. Um, the, which, of course... Uh, is made up at somewhere along the supply chain and it's not in in the profits of the ownership, generally speaking. The, I mean, the interesting thing here is uh, the piece rate regime for paying these workers, which like you're saying, they're, they're typically um, immigrants that are potentially uh, linguistically isolated, don't necessarily have um, you know command of English as a language. Mm-hmm. They work in these yeah. informal economies that allow them to get jobs uh, from one place to the next because a lot of these places where they're working are sort of fly-by-night subcontractors. And that's another part of what SB62 was intended to do, which I thought was really interesting as I was reading about it, was to push some of the liability for uh, workplace conditions and uh, and for wage theft back onto the brands that people are actually familiar with and you might expect, for example, that when you have uh, an H&M or a Uniqlo or whoever the case might be, uh, that they would be directly responsible for the conditions in which somebody is working uh, to produce the, sh- uh, the, the clothes that are sold under their label. But frequently, that's not the case. And I think one of the, uh, I think probably the worst case scenario for this is one that people might remember from a decade ago, which was the the factory collapse uh, in Bangladesh, where a thousand people died working in a factory that was producing clothes for H&M. And that, um, and that generated a huge humanitarian outcry and actually more recently has led to changes in um, in the the way that clothes are produced over there, or at least the way that liability is handled. But in general, when you have unsafe working conditions, 
in America, in Los Angeles, and you have uh, wage theft, the payment of sub-minimum wages to workers, it's very difficult for those workers to ever get recompense because they're not working for H&M. They're not working for, I feel bad I keep using them as, as an example, although probably I shouldn't. Uh, um, Say Forever 21. Forever 21. Yeah, Forever 21. Yes, that, um, any, any label that you can think of, they're not actually working for them directly. Instead, they're working for somebody that contracts with that company in order to produce X amount of clothes. And so in the event that something really terrible happens or they get uh, hit with a really large lawsuit before that can ever be processed through the legal system, that subcontractor will have folded up. It will be gone. You can't get blood from a stone, so to speak. So the workers are uh, are left without anything, and they end up just going for. They might end up working for the same people under a different name, under a different organizational name. So SB sixty two proposes that if you are um, this is this is something that has been done, I think, to great effect in other ways, where, for example. Uh, in our legal system, we've started having a push to, uh, if you are a somebody who benefits from a supply chain, you're not supposed to, and you can be liable for using a supply chain that has human slavery, human trafficking in, implicated in it. Um, and so here, again, we're putting, intending to put the onus onto businesses. The liability is on the businesses that are selling the clothes um, in the event that they are using wage theft to produce their cheap cheap items of clothing. But let's talk about let's talk about why this bill is not going anywhere because as we're recording this on Friday afternoon, it comes on the heels of a really big victory uh, that was just announced on Thursday, which was that the the bill had passed its vote in the assembly and was expected to today on Friday head back to the Senate for a concurrence vote due to amendments that were made in the uh, assembly. Today's the last day of the legislative session. Friday's the last day of the legislative session. And uh, and then go on to the governor. But what the latest news in, uh, in social media is on SB 62, as far as anyone is able to tell, is that assembly speaker Anthony Rendon has refused or declined so far to actually send the bill from the assembly where it has passed to the Senate where it needs a concurrence vote. Uh, Rachel, you came when you came today before we started recording, you pointed out that the bill is not on the calendar and it needs to be in order to pass tonight, right? Yes, it needs to be on the schedule. And th- this, is, this is such a weird act of political chicanery. I don't like... Yeah, this is like next level uh, holding sabotage. a bill. Holding a bill in appropriations is the usual move. And this one is uh, like kind of the next level sabotage. You're right. How, holding a bill that has... i like it. So the, the thing is, this is a procedural step. It's not like... There's nothing left to be done in the assembly. All that right. needs to happen is the assembly needs to present the bill to the Senate so that the Senate can do... Uh, a concurrence vote is basically saying the Senate passed a version of this bill. It came from the Senate. It went to the Assembly where it also passed with amendments. Now the California Senate just needs to be able to either approve the amendments that are in there or 
do its own amendment. In this case, it, they wouldn't do that. They would just approve the assembly version most likely and then send it to Gavin Newsom. So by apparently unilaterally holding this bill until the deadline, this is similar to what we saw uh, what we saw the assembly do last year. And what was, I mean, what were what were the bills that were held last year? It was like a really shameful episode in the Assembly's history. It was like police accountability. It was um, uh, the predecessors to SB 9 and 10. Yeah, it's always uh, the housing bills. And then it's always the policing bills. And then. Uh, the Assembly basically. But and in that case, it was even a little bit more understandable because the Assembly was although it handled its business extremely poorly and and it was uh, a disaster in every regard they actually did vote on the things but they did so at such a point in time that the senate couldn't possibly receive and vote on them in this case they already voted on it there's nothing there's nothing to be said except that it seems like Rendon the the assembly speaker just does not want this to become law. Again, just for clarity, this bill did pass out of the state legislature and is currently awaiting a signature or veto from Governor Gavin Newsom. This could be one of the last things that Governor Newsom does, (laughs) right? Because the recall (laughs) vote happens on Tuesday. And if he loses, this will obviously not be signed by a Governor Larry Alter or Caitlyn Jenner, or whoever wins. <laughs> um, so it's it's just, I, it makes me wonder what the business side is doing. Like, I want to know, like, this is such a slam dunk, basic worker protections, um, that I am extremely curious as to why you would not want to hand the governor another really good thing to do before the, the vote on Tuesday. I would say this is grounds for an actual recall, because it's so clearly... Uh, the the action of a single person, uh, and it is so clearly just an act of political cowardice. It it blows blows my mind. And we'll op- update this segment based on what happens following the close of the legislative session. But uh, as of right now, there's been no word from the speaker's office as to why they have delayed, uh, and and why this is the bill that they the only bill that they've delayed in this way passing on to the Senate. So we want to talk last of all about two separate stories that came out last week regarding the use of different social media surveillance tactics by the Los Angeles Police Department. There was a story in LA Taco last week by Lexis Olivier Ray that was uh, related to the use of a company called Data Miner by LAPD. This company provides what they call, quote-unquote, public sector alerts to... Uh, they'll say they'll do it to for any public sector or public department that requests it. In this case, it is used by LAD, or LAPD in order to assess... Uh, emerging protest actions or other uh, other tactical, tactically important events throughout the city by the police department. At the same time, Sam Levin of The Guardian put out another story regarding the use of field interview cards to collect social media handles and um, for apparent tracking purposes by LAPD. 
what is what's happening? Please, somebody make me. I wish we could ask um, LAPD because they've now posted the same information, trying to clarify this with no um, context on all their social media. They just kind of repeated what was in the story. Yeah, they were, but it was just like hilarious. They're like, "Oh, you wanted to see these." Well, here they are. Oh, wait, that was the wrong one. Oh, here's the real one. And then on another account where you cannot reply to them, there we've talked the about this PIO, before. The, the new PIO um, account they made, uh, where they, does, you are not allowed to reply to them, only to quote tweet them, which I right. think is actually sometimes better. The um, LAPD public information <laughs> officer has as a Twitter account, a new Twitter account where the replies are always turned off and you you just cannot question or or otherwise disparage anything they have to say unless you do it yeah, and in posted, dunk format. They posted a, a card where it was like, the reason we collect these is because social media is used almost the same way for communication that people use the phone or email. And but and then they turned off replies on their own posts. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one-way communication tool in this case. Well, what was interesting is so Sam Levin's reporting in the Guardian about the the field interview cards, which apparently have had uh, social media handles as part of the information collected for even routine stops or interviews since 2015. Uh, there, there was a, a memo from former Chief Charlie Beck indicating that they wanted this information to be collected for everyone, that uh, these cards to be fully filled out, including Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, handles uh, six years ago now. Um, that, that came out of a CPRA, Public Records Act request, filed by the Brennan Center uh, for social... Sorry, the Brennan Center in uh, New York. And that CPRA request was from January of 2020. So it's kind of funny now that these stories are starting to come out that the LAPD is like, oh, you wanted to see this? I don't understand. What's the problem? They spent uh, nearly two years and actually were sued by the Brennan Center for um, for their refusal to be forthcoming with with the various uses of social media by the department. So it seems like it has been something that they're trying to keep under wraps, but now they're acting like it never was. Yeah. And if if you talk to anybody that had been, there was some chatter, people talking about how they had been um, detained or, um, you know, arrested in in protests. Um, And you can decline, but they have this whole... um, you know, procedure about like really make sure that you are getting this information. It's very, very critical. Um, and you have to like get permission from like a supervising officer or something like that not to include it. So it's obviously very key and, and knowing now how they like to particularly track social media influencers, as they call them, at protests or other actions, as we saw in the Echo Park um, After Action Report. They're like obsessed with people who use social media to share pictures of them or what they're doing or to organize uh, events that the police might have interest in. So, you know, they've got this wonderful database of um all of all of your handles. So. Well, I mean, we're and we are as LA Podcast actually trying to get them to disclose any database that they might have with just. 
I mean, every stop that they make, they're collecting people's social media handles. We're trying to get them to disclose any database they might have because I think there are clear surveillance concerns, which is actually the motivating reason for uh, the Brennan Center's lawsuit against the LAPD. I want to talk a little bit about the history of this because as laid out by by the Brennan Center in, in their complaint and um, and in the, the story that they published related to Sam Levins in The Guardian, it is a long history in which we, we have talked a little bit about uh, protest movements like Stop LAPD Spying, which were uh, organized in order to address things like the LAPD's contracts with Palantir, which is a surveillance company, uh, uh, or the the use of Palantir's so-called predictive policing modules that were seen as a thinly disguised mechanism by which the LAPD could... Um, surveil or or expand existing surveillance of communities of color in Los Angeles. But according to the Brennan Center, back in 2014, LAPD had dozens of staffers working full-time manually reviewing social media posts to try and determine uh, what was going on in the city of Los Angeles, try and get a jump on um, on crimes being committed if you want to cast this generously or if they just wanted to planning my my robberies on twitter <laughs> well i mean yeah that that was apparently the i mean that was apparently the motivating uh factor and around 2015 they began using other services that, that like we we actually started seeing in the second half of the 20 uh, of the 2010s a growth in paid services that analyze social media for you, the police, and um, and help you assess uh, so-called threats to public safety. Um, so basically like a, a concierge service version of Citizen directly for the police. But what happened in 2016, especially toward the, the latter half of that year, as we saw uh, a, a return to the the street protests of Black Lives Matter, um, which had beca- begun several years earlier, of course, but were re uh, reemerging in the public consciousness. The ACLU of Northern California actually wrote letters to the largest platforms of, of social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, telling them. There are now numerous companies that are using your services and using the data that you produce in order to help police surveil the public. That led to direct changes, including at Twitter, a blanket ban on anybody using uh, anybody using Twitter's APIs, the the data faucets, basically to um, to surveil the public. So. LAPD sort of had to go back to the drawing board. They canceled some of their existing contracts. And now what we see is companies like Data Miner who say that they are not doing... I mean, the previous the previous companies were very brazen. They would say, the intention of this is to help you surveil people. Like, I mean, it was... And then they would literally use the examples of, we want to help you uh, track what black people are doing in your city. Like it was, it was fairly brazen. It was a top request. It was, uh, yeah, it was what's, what's happening at the black lives matter protests or whatever. They were, they were fairly brazen. 
um, and that that's easy for Twitter to like root out. But now uh, companies like Data Miner who just say, "Oh, we're just providing you an alert. All we're doing is what what Data Miner sells uh, public departments on is their ability to uh, receive." tweets as soon as they're sent and analyze the location and content of them in such a way that they can say, oh, a lot of people are talking about this particular thing at this location. A lot of people are talking about uh, protesting Mayor Garcetti. That was that was an example that that came up. Going to uh, Getty Mansion to, to do a protest of, of the mayor. Um, but it still sort of seems like it is amounting to, especially when you look at it in um, in conjunction with the other reporting from Sam Levin, it seems like it's amounting to an attempt at surveillance, particularly of these left-wing protest groups. Mm-hmm. It's um, and, and so it's so, so weird. It just seems like it's a retread of police tactics from throughout the 20th century, honestly. And they were trying to remember when they were asking for more money to help them like deal with protests. And part of it was adding more staff who could look at social media and, you know, help prepare these responses. So, you know, I'm sure they'll try to find a way to make sworn officers be doing those roles. But of course, you know, they can hire these data companies to, you know, give them the research and then have people who work in the department who are basically just spending all their days. Looking at our Twitter feeds. Yeah. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's an online organizer now. Look, they just wanted more money to hire online organizers to get on that big Google Doc where all of our handles are. I just think it's interesting, right? Because it's obviously this is used to track black and brown people in the city. That's what it is. Um, but it's funny because like they couldn't use all of that money, our money, to stop people going to DC on January sixth, like right. that, including from their own department. Yeah, where, saying, are we like, tracking what? those accounts? Because yeah. that would be really interesting. No, is there and, a and card on that? And this is interesting too, because now, I mean, you have a situation where LAPD is saying we are within our rights and also like being responsible by anybody that we come into contact with, regardless of if they've committed a crime if they are suspected of committing a crime or if they just are being interviewed, we're going to take down their social media (laughs) information. Um, But I I wonder if you were to, I don't have to wonder because this question has come (laughs) up before, like if you were to actually tell them you should know what all of your employees' social media handles Mm. are because it's important that they not be out there uh, spouting mm. apologetics for the rooftop Korean mm. fascist guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like it's important that that be known to the department maybe before it happens. They yeah. say, no, it's First Amendment. You know, right. they can, until they violate departmental rules, they can do whatever they want. Now they're using a dragnet to attempt to figure out, I mean, and, and some of this is just like the pettiest sort of engagement envy apparently like in the baffler <laughs> in 2016 uh jasmine canick told the author of an article in the baffler in 2016 that um she had heard from sources inside the police department that they were tracking her social media and also sharing information on how many likes and retweets uh 
posts of hers had had achieved. Just so um, yeah, engagement envy is what I think that is. Yeah. Um, but it is. But that's also that's also what data miner is doing for them yeah. now. In the story that Lexis Olivier Ray put out, like the data miner is saying, this account has this many followers. Um, they're at this location. This many likes and retweets. Um, it sounds all really ridiculous, but in some, it amounts to something that seems fairly sinister. And just like the like, I mean, to to even use a different example than social media, one of the other things that came out of Sam Levin's reporting and the Brennan Center's lawsuit is that LAPD is de facto collecting social security numbers, and that they've told their um, they've told their officers in the field that if they ask for social security numbers, anyone who they ask has to provide them to them. That is directly at odds, somebody from Loyola Law School pointed out, directly at odds with what Garcetti and Chief Michael Moore have said, which is that they are not ever asking for immigration status. But now, oh, according to this, yeah, yeah. they're asking for social security numbers yeah. and it is a crime to not give it to the police right. if they ask for it. Yeah. So um, you have to say, I don't have a social security number. That is the same thing as saying I am not a citizen, right? So, I mean, it's, it is incredibly Imagine obtrusive. if you had to tell them that you weren't on Twitter. That would be like the right. most hurtful. <laughs> I mean, right. Like, would you say, would you say, yeah, I'm at, I mean, they know yours I'm gonna, already. I'm, I'm going sure. to start memorizing um, some of the Proud Boy and like, right. you know, I'm yeah. just going to start, I'm just giving those handles out or any, anybody that was at the Capitol, right? I'm just going to give them those. Is those that ones. like falsifying? documents like though. And the law and order sound in the state of California it is a crime to knowingly <laughs> provide false <laughs> social media handles social media to an arresting officer maybe let's not do that quite yet Alyssa um, yeah be careful tread carefully especially because I'm sure they've got like the uh, the Facebook glasses that tell them exactly who you are <laughs> <laughs> That's what their aviators are doing under under the covers. There, this seems like something where uh, the in in the best world, the city council would step in and and say, or the mayor would say that the department should not operate in this way. But I think we have a, a good <laughs> sense that 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 won't be happening. I mean, in in the world that we actually live in, this seems like something that more likely the state government should should take action right, on because yeah. there are I think one of the things that the the Brennan Center's uh, CPRA requests and their actions more generally are intended to highlight for the public is that there are relatively few protections for I mean explicit protections there are maybe implicit constitutional ones around search and seizure or uh, First Amendment protections um, but there are relatively few explicit protections that prevent police from going after social media data en masse like this. Um, and so maybe that's what we can hope for to come out of Sacramento in the next legislative session. Um, final thoughts on our friends at the LAPD? Just turn on your replies on the PIO account and we won't bother you anymore. Not, no. It's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying to get used to this now before Buscaino becomes mayor because it, oh. it will be compulsory. And You'll have to get your social media like handle tattooed on your arm. Right. Yeah, right. So. Yeah. <laughs>
Okay, um, that has been episode 191. We are uh, looking forward to the next week. Tomorrow, as you're listening to this, it is the final day to vote in the recall election. Um, Any other real quick updates on events that are coming up this week? Very quickly, on this Saturday, September 18th from 9 to 12 at the East Hollywood Community Fridge, there will be um, another pop-up vaccine clinic. If you need a second dose of Moderna, you can go get it there. Um, Or you can also get the Johnson & Johnson one-dose vaccine if you are not vaccinated. Um, Again, that's this Saturday, the 18th from 9 to 12 at the East Hollywood Community Fridge. Love that. And shout out to the LA County Fair is doing a miniature version of the LA County Fair this year. Um, It's called the Bite Size Fair. It's mostly focused around deep fried food items. Mm. Um, But it's the last time the fair is going to be held in the hot months of September and October. They are moving it next year to May due to the warming of our planet. Yes. No more dry lightning fairs for you. Uh, also on Wednesday, keep an eye out for the next episode of TMZ. Those episodes are going directly into our main feed now. Thank you to our Sepulveda pass holders for making that possible. If you want to join, it's patreon.com slash LA podcast. We have big news on the horizon around our new member September member drive. That is all for us. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing, Matt Tinoco for editing, and we will see you next week. Bye.